0: Welcome to episode 404 with my guest Adam Caton-Holland. Today's episode is sponsored by the podcast Tilted. Sheryl Sandberg's nonprofit Lean In just launched a new podcast called Tilted to explore the gender bias that lurks in unexpected places. Uh, it features intimate conversations with some of the world's most powerful women in Hollywood, sports, and business. And in the first few episodes, uh, Sheryl Sandberg answers questions from men on work and sex. And Politicos discuss the women candidates who are running for office in unprecedented numbers this year. So listen and subscribe to Tilted from Lean In wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Paul Gill Martin. This here is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, uh, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I don't know what that what that little uh tone variation was. Uh I'm not a therapist, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that uh, doesn't suck. We have a great show for you today. Um we're going to talk about uh in addition to Adam, who's a a great great guest. Um we're going to read uh some really fascinating listener emails. Um some We're going to talk about the power of caramels, caramels, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, We're going to talk about consent. We're going to read some great struggle in the sentence surveys. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the new lady that I'm seeing. Um, And we're going to talk about moms without boundaries. That's kind of like doctors without boundaries, but instead of going, uh, into a village and giving people shots, they just give them a vague sense of, uh, dread. Um, want to remind you, if you are in Minneapolis or near Minneapolis, uh, Saturday, October 13th, which is, let's see, this airs on Friday, October 12th. So, um, yeah. Tomorrow night. <laughs> I'm going down a rabbit hole. Saturday, October 13th, I'll be in Minneapolis at Sisyphus Brewing uh, doing two live shows. The first one at 5 o'clock with comedian Chell Borgen, and the second one at 8 o'clock with return guest uh, Nora McInerney. And um, it's going to be fun. I'll put a link to. Info and tickets and all that under the show notes for this. Um, you can also just go to Sisyphus Brewing. A uh, brewery? Brewing? I used to think it was Sisyphus Brewery, and now I'm trying to get into my head that it's Sisyphus Brewing. Um, and good luck spelling Sisyphus if you try to go there on your own. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, BetterHelp is an online therapy provider, and uh, I love it. I love my therapist, Donna. I've been with her for almost two years, and uh, she really, really helps me with all of my issues. Uh, the one that we're working on right now is dealing with my going-to-worst-case scenario if I feel like somebody is mad at me or they don't return a phone call or a text, um, and so she gives me this gave me this phrase for me to say to myself, which is, I'm not going to assume I did something wrong. It's most likely not about me. And if it is, it doesn't mean I did something wrong. I will make no assumptions. And I say it to myself in the mirror with a bullhorn. Extra, extra loud. Uh So check out betterhelp.com. Um, Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. It's important you include the slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. Fill out a questionnaire and then they'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. All right, I'm going to read a couple of surveys and a couple of emails before we get to the uh, interview with Adam. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Cassini and about her anxiety. She writes, it feels as if every genuinely compassionate phrase I carefully craft in my head will be instantly seen as utterly false by whoever receives it. Snapshot from her life. I stare at tall buildings because I'm begging myself to climb to the top and jump off. It's one of the reasons why I adore New York City. Thank you for that. Um, Somebody who's new to the podcast may be wondering, why are you chuckling and thanking her for that? Well, just listen to more episodes of the podcast and it'll begin to make sense. You will see that uh, we are kind of a community, um, the listeners and the guests and, and I. And it's not about wallowing in the darkness. It's about not feeling alone in the darkness Um, warrior wounds describes her codependency your reaction will tell me how I feel that is so good snapshot from her life the Supreme Court confirmation is happening today and it occurred to me that for me depression is pain that had nowhere to go Uh, that is so true that's what they that's what they say is depression is anger turned inwards and um yeah a a new level of fucked upness uh in this country and and that's one of the reasons too why i wanted to read um this moment uh about consent it's uh it's a happy moment and it was filled out by a woman who calls herself enthusiastic yes and i just think this encapsulates uh so Many of the details of the after effects of sexual trauma and what it's like for survivors to try to be intimate again after that, that people who've never experienced unwanted sexual experiences probably can't picture and why they often minimize it. Uh, She writes, uh, I wanted to share this moment in light of all the conversations around consent and the Me Too movement. In this moment, so many people are reevaluating what that perceived consent to be, which is so important, uh, or what they perceive consent to be. But it perhaps leaves people wondering how to ask for consent or thinking that incorporating consent into their sexual encounters will kill the mood. So I just wanted to share a bit about a recent experience with a new partner that was so consentful and sexy and left me feeling safe and cared for despite my anxiety about sex. This encounter happened with an acquaintance I had known casually for six months or so, but who I had never spent time with uh, alone until I ended up at his place one night after an event at a mutual friend's house. We'll call him Luke. Hooking up with new people is extremely anxiety-inducing for me. No matter how attracted I am to someone or how prepared I feel, it always ends up with my body reacting in awful ways. Often I find myself trying to hide my gasps for air after my body freezes and I cannot breathe or swallow from the sense of panic that engulfs me. I get this visceral sensation that everything could spin out at any moment. Sometimes it gets to a point where I feel faint as the world wobbles around me. Even thinking about new hookups is enough to start my face tingling and my hands shaking. It is the most unpleasant adrenaline rush. Often people I am with don't even notice or at least don't comment. That night, I went to Luke's house, knowing that I wanted to have some sort of encounter with him, as I had been interested for a while after hanging out at his place for a short while. It became pretty clear that we would probably end up hooking up, and thus, my internal freakout ensued. I felt the panic start to bubble up as I raced against waves of na- as I braced against waves of nausea and hid shaky hands in my pockets at one point. When he had gone to the washroom, I began mildly hyperventilating, and my thoughts raced and my body froze. I determinedly used breathing techniques to stop the hot, dizzy tears from escaping my eyes. My flight instinct kicked in so intensely, all my nerves were just begging me to run. But I stood there breathing, trying to focus my attention on his book collection, uh, and then parentheses, which was pretty great. I really liked this guy, and I wanted to stay. I had collected myself by the time he returned and was sitting cross-legged on the couch, shaking, but only slightly. I am not sure whether or not he noticed. He came and sat next to me, touching his knee to mine, and we chatted about graphic novels and music until I had calmed myself down quite a bit. The easy conversation between us was comforting, and I liked the way he looked at me. At some point, Luke asked if I wanted to go to his bedroom and hang out in there, to which I said yes. So he reached for my shaky hands and led me to his room down the hall. When we were in his room, he asked if he could give me a hug, and I said yes. As he wrapped his arms around me, I felt a bit faint from the anxiety, but also comforted. I breathed deeply. As we stood there in each other's arms for a few moments, he leaned his face closer to mine and whispered, that he wanted to kiss me in a way that felt entirely free of pressure or presumption. I responded by kissing him. After the kiss, I sat down on his bed and told him that hooking up with new people makes me extremely anxious and to not take it personally if I needed space or wanted to stop or left abruptly and to not expect that I would want to have penetrative sex that night. He thanked me for telling him and sat beside me on his bed. Despite my shaking getting worse, we started to make out again. Eventually, I relaxed, and the adrenaline wore off for a while. He asked me what I liked and if there was anything I did not like. He asked me if there was anything he could do to make me feel more comfortable. I told him he was doing great, because he was. He asked before lifting off my shirt, and I asked before taking off his Luke asked for consent in so many ways that were sexy, more than just, can I touch? He said things like, do you like this? Is this okay? Does this feel good? Is this the right spot? Why don't you show me how? Can I do this for you? Are you down to try this? And just as important, Luke waited for me to respond. He made no assumptions about what I would want or what I liked. I, in turn, asked what we what he liked. We talked about sex more in one night than I had with partners I'd had year-long relationships with. He didn't feel awkward asking, so it didn't feel awkward telling. He was just genuinely interested in what makes my body feel good. It made me feel so comfortable to have someone actually check in with me. It didn't feel like I was part of his fantasy or a role that he had scripted that I was just the other actor that night. It felt like we were truly exploring and respecting each other's bodies as unique and complex entities. It did, I don't know why I <laughs> pronounced entities that way. It didn't feel like my orgasm was about his ego and his need to prove his sexual prowess. I told him I wouldn't come that night, and I didn't. But we both had a lovely time. That cliched adage about how life is about the journey, not the destiny, not the destination, super applicable to sex orgasms are great but not everyone has an easy time getting there especially with partners so don't let that take away from all the other great sensations that are involved in getting physical i still had an anxiety attack in the cab home but i had never felt so respected listened to and comfortable in a sexual situation with a man before Uh, On in parentheses having sex with women tends to be a different experience I was the least anxious after hooking up with someone new than i had ever felt the next time i saw him we did end up having penetrative sex and i didn't have an anxiety attack after for the first time ever things did not end up working out between us but i really value that experience as a sort of bar to hold new hookups to now it expanded my own vocabulary for consent and made me realize how much of a difference it makes to my sense of safety I'm not interested in having sex with people that don't ask me what I like or what I want. P.S., if you can't ask where or how someone wants to be touched and feel sexy, you should probably reevaluate the way you are having sex. Communicating your boundaries makes sex better, especially for those of us that have histories of trauma or complicated bodies due to gender identity, pain, or other experience. So to all those folks, that aren't sure about how to make consent part of their sexual experience, remember that consent is just about listening and respecting your partner. Respect is sexy. Listening is sexy. Consent is sexy. Thank you for that. That uh, What a beautiful and timely uh, survey. This is a uh, struggle in a sentence filled out by a trans man uh, who calls himself Pretty Boy and about his depression. He writes seasonal depression is like riding the stupidest roller coaster with the tallest but slowest drop ever. That one made me laugh so fucking hard. That is just brilliant. Uh about his OCD, it's like bruises are on the wrong side of my skin and everything not done the right way keeps pressing on them. I just think about that one for a while, but I think I I think I get it. Um Thank you for that. Quiet desperation shares about her depression. The sudden urge to run random cars off the road because I'm too chicken shit to run myself off the road. Hashtag Mondays. About her alcoholism. The only thing I am sure to inherit from my family. About her, about being a sex crime victim, one of the hardest things I've been through, and yet one of the only things I've had wet dreams about. And that is so, so much more common than people think it is, and then they shame themselves for it. The, you know, the myriad of ways that sexual violation sends ripples throughout the rest of our lives and areas of our lives is, um, Pretty mind-bending about living with an abuser. Home is where the bruises come from. That is such a fucked-up T-shirt. It, that's even over my line of what I would put on a T-shirt. But um, thank you for a very, uh, very uh, vulnerable and witty survey. Uh, can I be backspaced from existence? Uh, describes his codependency. It's like my heart is inside someone else's body, but I can feel every beat. God, that is so, it is so good. A snapshot from his life. In the past few months, I've met or talked to a handful of girls in an attempt to build some confidence. Just about every single one ends up ghosting me. They vanish without a trace and I'm left wondering, hurt, and anxious. It's extremely painful uh, to not get closure or even just an acknowledgement to my humanity. Recently, I met a girl, hit it off, connected really quickly. We had sex. It was my first time. I'm a late starter. Uh, woke up the next day and everything's great. When she goes home, I'm blocked from all social media and never heard back from her again. This really fucked up my trust and psyche and has caused me to go on a bender of days filled with drugs, stupid decisions, and anxiety. I know that no one owes me a reason they didn't respond, but it should be known how much that can fuck with someone's head and how much it hurt me to have so many nerves left raw. Um and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some tough love here. It sounds like there's some unhealthy drinking going on there um, because you I in your survey you uh mentioned that you have alcoholism and drug addiction um you describe it as an escape to an equally depressing world where you're even more fucked up than usual that if that's not addressed the rest of this is pointless and there will be no healthy long-term relationship and you you wrote um really fucked up my trust and psyche and has caused me to go on a bender um here's the tough love it did not cause you to go on a bender that's the tool that you reached for to deal with your feelings and so often the not hearing from someone and i'm guilty i have i have um Ghosted people on a dating site, and and I feel terrible about it. I don't do it anymore, but I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to hear hurt their feelings, and and I as well have have been ghosted, and it sucks uh, from from both accounts. But it's usually um, that that person doesn't know what to say, and so we just we just avoid it. Um, but if if you don't deal. If you don't develop some better tools for dealing with your feelings, you're going to be spinning your wheels for a long, long time. Uh, I want to tell you guys about a new sponsor of ours, uh, Roman. I did not know this, but 70% of guys who experience erectile dysfunction don't get treated for it. And thankfully, Roman has created an easy way to get checked out by a doctor and get treated for erectile dysfunction online. And I'm going to share here that um, I deal with it. And I don't know how to describe precisely, uh, kind of, if it were, <laughs> if uh if my penis was a drawbridge, most of the time it's keeping the invaders out, but every once in a while it lets one through. And it it is it's frustrating and my experience in getting pills for it has not been good because it's I have to go to my GP. I have to make an appointment. Um, and they are expensive going through my insurance. Uh, so when they approached me about doing an ad, I said, well, let me try it out and see what your service is like. And if I like it, then we'll, uh, we'll do an ad. And I did it and it's great. And it costs me about half as much as getting, uh, pills through my insurance. Uh, Roman is a one-stop shop where licensed U.S. physicians can diagnose ED and ship medication right to your front door. With Roman, there's no waiting rooms, awkward face-to-face conversations, or uncomfortable trips to the pharmacy. You can handle everything online. All you have to do is visit getroman.com fill out a brief medical onboarding chat with a doctor and get FDA approved ed meds delivered to your door in discreet unmarked packaging um, I I did all of that and it was super simple and um, as expedient as possible without being um, uh, irresponsible on their part so for a free online vi- online visit go Go to getroman.com slash mental. That's getroman.com slash mental for a free online visit. Getroman.com slash mental. And then uh, finally, this is uh, a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself dogs. And uh, about his depression, he writes, Depression feels like nothing can ever be harmonious again. Oh, that, that is so good. And then this one I love about his ADD. Reading feels like filling a bathtub with a fork. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me I'm here with Adam Caton-Holland. Uh, I'm pronouncing it correctly. Right? Yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> not that difficult of a name, but for some reason I get self-conscious. People I... go
1: Clayton all the time. People want
0: to say Clayton, but yeah. it's Caton. So yeah. thank you for not bringing an L into the situation. And do you say to them, uh, are you normally not paying attention in life? <laughs> it's I do. I do. It I have is? a card that says it because so, I'm so tired of saying it. You just pull it out of your breast pocket like a magician. Yeah. And is this your foible? <laughs> uh, you're from Denver. You're out here for a little while because you have a show called uh, Those Who Can't. Yep, exactly. Um, and uh, you also have a book called Tragedy Plus Time, which is a really, really bittersweet book. It's getting amazing uh Re- reviews and uh understandably well thank you it's really heartfelt and vulnerable and um let's kind of chronologically um talk about your story without launching into the heaviness okay. of the book yet so yeah, sure. um we can kind of set it set it
1: up. yeah i mean i just, you know denver colorado born and raised uh, I, I was in a, you know, my dad was a civil, is a civil rights attorney and my mom was an investigative journalist. And we kind of, me and my two sisters were raised very, uh, empathetic. And, you know, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention type kids. And they were also hippie parents as well. So there was a lot of love, but a lot of concern for the world. Mm-hmm. So you had to be outraged and then be proactive about that outrage was kind of the mantra in my household.
0: You know, as, as I was reading your, Book, and you were describing that uh, kind of positive negative of having the distracted but empathetic parent it, it it reminded me of a lot of the stories that I read of people who have a sibling who is disabled, where it takes up a lot of the parents' attention, and the parents are loving, but there is just simply not enough of that uh, time of being present. For those, those kids to, um, feel completely like. Interesting. Yeah. I yeah, mean, well, I, 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 don't let me put words in your no, mouth. No, I think, I think that's
1: an interesting analogy, especially because, you know, the empathy, especially that my little sister Lydia felt for the world at times was too much for us to bear. We were very sensitive kids. And I think, I don't think my parents were in any way neglectful or too busy. They were there in every regard, but I do think they gave us a real dose of like, You know, wow, the world is a a rough place, and we're gonna fix it. But gotta go to work, and uh, you know, we were like, "Well, the world's a rough place." So, you know, there was a lot of that. They they equipped us well to handle it, but we each sort of dealt with it in our own way as well, for sure.
0: Would it be safe to say that there was kind of a base level of anxiety? Yes,
1: you know, and I, you know, I can't examine, I can't psychoanalyze my parents, but my dad's definitely got some anxiety, and. All of us were very OCD and anxious growing up, as I think many, you know, intellectuals, children of intellectuals may be. There's just kind of maybe too much, too many synapses firing too fast and the kids don't know how to handle it as a youngster. So you sort of start doing OCD rituals to, you know, tame the chaos in your brain. Right. And talk about some of some of yours. Well, for me, it was this unending and I kept adding things uh that had to do with going to sleep. You know, it was a process of, of you know, it got better over time, but from about eight to, I don't know, 14, it was, it, it became a 20 to 30 minute routine of going to sleep. And I'm not talking about just brushing your teeth, I'm talking about turning, I had a TV in my bedroom because uh, I'm a child of privilege. And, you know, there I had to, yeah, there's a jump back between channels button previous channel or whatever i had to have it set on 04 and the jump back had to be 09 and then i had to like a mantra be like 04. Turn it off. Then I'd, like, count the bars on my bed, make sure the pillow was perfectly centered. Then I said these very ritualistic prayers, but we weren't raised religious, so I just kind of invented prayers to say to make sure everything was in check and, you know, on and on and on. Do you remember
0: what the prayers were?
1: It was blessing – well, like, here's how OCD it was. Like, the one I can can remember, the upfront, I would say, (laughs) so – this is so revealing. It's like, God, please bring love to 04, but not 09. <laughs> <laughs> and please keep those stations barren of dangerous programming. So nothing bad's going on on the TV while I sleep. Um, no, I would say, please bless my mother, you know, Linda Kate, my father, John Holland, my sister, Anna Kate and Holland, my little sister, Lydia Ann, Kate and Kate Holland. And then I would have to say it backwards so that night, so they all had equal ranking. Please bless Lydia and Kate and Holland, Anna, Estelle, Kate and Holland. Uh, Linda Page and John Robert Holland. So it's like in the first round, they got one point. In the second round, they got four points. They were all equal. No one was more blessed than the other.
0: So kind of like a snake draft. It was a sn- in, I in snake draft. Foot, football to make sure everybody gets an equal. I
1: snake drafted my wow. prayers every night to make sure that it was equal distribution. of Wow. Goodwill. You yeah. even
0: brought your parents sense of civil rights into your <laughs> OCD.
1: I guess, man, I'm lucky that it got, easier as I went on. The one that I still do, which I write about in the book that my little sister did, and this just makes, it says a lot about her. If she dropped anything on the ground, a piece of trash, a goldfish cracker, you would then have to immediately drop another one so that that one wouldn't be lonely for whatever new, path it was on wow. and that just made a lot of sense to me i mean i was at a baseball game the other day i dropped a peanut and i just surreptitiously dropped one peanut and then i felt bad that i only dropped one because i think of me and my sisters as a trio so i dropped another peanut so there was just like that's wow. still firmly embedded
0: you and know. does that relieve the tension in that moment
1: yeah because i totally dropped the second one And then I kind of forgot about it. But then in the back of my head, I was like, you got to drop another one. It's like you and your sisters are a trio, man. Like, drop the third one. So I, and that wouldn't go away. I kind of tried to fight it for a minute to, Mm -hmm. because I know it's ridiculous, but it it wouldn't go away. So I dropped the third one and then it was
0: done. Interesting. The, the divide between the intellectual and the emotional.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, the intellectual, it was a good game. <laughs> it was There was a, a lot of action going on, but I was not present. I needed to emotionally drop the third peanut.
0: And is there a, a particular uh, thought of what would happen if you didn't do that? Or is it just a general feeling of uh, doom is going to descend? Yeah. I think now
1: it's, it's very much an academic-emotional split. And, and now I know nothing's fine. And even in the emotional, I've dropped one peanut, so... They're good. It's not lonely, but it's just almost like a, like the writer in me is kind of like, but it's a better adventure if there's three of them. (laughs) Like, they could have, you know, more characters, more opportunities. So I drop a third, you know?
0: And is it the reason it's still there? One of the reasons it's still there is that they're not as complicated and burdensome as they were when you were a child. So it's like, well, you know, this, no, Is crippling when I was a kid. And I
1: remember going off to a soccer camp and having a roommate when I was in, I don't know, eighth grade or something, never had stayed with anybody. And he was kind of looking at me like, what the hell are you doing over there? And I was trying to do it on a low boil, but it, you know, amounted to 15 minutes of your roommate over there fidgeting. He probably thought I was jerking off or something, but I was just trying to like do a low tier repetition of my routine. So... It almost shamed me out of it. And, you know, when I got to college and started having girlfriends and stuff, I, I just realized this might not be the sexiest thing I could possibly be doing in this moment. <laughs> you didn't find the right girl. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> my wife would understand and she allows me whatever the ones I have to do now. Um, but yeah, it definitely I dialed it back. And the ones that remain are the easier ones, little things I have to do on airplanes to make sure the plane doesn't go down. I got to touch, you know, as you walk through that door, I have to touch the, the fuselage on the outside. I just have, always have to touch it. I don't know why, yeah. but I have to.
0: When I, when I was a kid, my dad would carry me uh, to bed and it was like one of the few moments where I felt like a bond between my dad and I and we would walk up the stairs and I just realized it now that this was a really special ritual to me is there was a point where the ceiling would come down low enough on the stairs that I could touch it and it was actually, there was... Dirt on it from my hand, touching it so many times. And then my dad just abruptly stopped, uh, carrying me. Not for that reason. My mom shared with me <laughs> a couple of years ago is because she was afraid, uh, that because my dad was drinking, he was going to molest me. And oh so she goodness. said, please don't have any physical contact with him wow. anymore. Wow. What a
1: harsh reversal. Yes. That's the sweetest memory. Yeah. It's your own. Pieta at the Vatican yeah. that you're just yeah, it really hitting was. every day, but
0: it just occurred to me now that that was really important to me that I touch that every yeah. every night. But <clears throat> getting, wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so. Was it on your parents' radar? It had to be that you kids were doing this and how did they react? I think they laughed at it and I, because I think
1: they had, they knew they had their own things like that. They never viewed it as anything troublesome. I think they're like, look at our neurotic kids. And then they were probably like, well, look at neurotic us. What do you think?
0: So it was never a uh, cause for sincere concern or anything. So it wasn't a malicious laughter. It was more of a no. kind of they didn't understand the seriousness that there is. I, th- kind
1: of. I think that, the you know, I don't even know how much seriousness there was behind it. I think it was just young minds trying to make order out of the chaos they perceived in the world I before see. they learned how to be adults and use their faculties to try to counteract some of this stuff. Um, I think they probably laughed at it and said, God, I wish they wouldn't do it to that degree, right. you know, but they'll grow out of it. I think that was probably
0: their approach. Was there ever talk of going to therapy?
1: I mean, I went to therapy early on. Um I don't really know. Was it your initiative? No. When I was like four, when Lydia was about to be born, I just started drawing very concerning drawings. And then I started seeing those Sally Struthers commercials with starving African children. And they just knocked me out. And I was like, I want to die. If they're dying, I want to die. I don't see why they die and I live. It was just, you know, a four-year-old trying to. Mm-hmm. But it really sunk me. It wasn't. You know, you're four. It's not affected. It was sincere. And so they took me to a therapist to sort of try to help with some of that. Yeah. And I don't remember anything. I remember the therapist had a um, punching doll, like those clown dummies you can just punch over and they come back up. And all I remember is punching that thing. <laughs> and then at some point they're like, all right, he's fine. And I moved on from there. Did you apologize to the clown
0: afterwards? <laughs> Say, listen, the world is a
1: terrible as place. As long as it was a white clown, they had a. I couldn't. I could only punch the white clown. <laughs> and you had to make sure it was a straight cisgendered any other clowns and it was and i found it i found the right clown to punch they had a line of clowns (laughs) and i chose that one uh i think anna went to some she was a really great uh figure skater so so great that she was i mean olympic track she went and trained with nancy kerrigan's coach when we were young and she was very good but then her her hips were so injured from falling after years and years by like 15, she's getting cortisone injections into her hips and the pain just became too much and she had to stop. But I mean this, my sister had invested years of her life and it was close enough to taste. So I remember her going to some therapy after that and, you know, a dark year or two for her where she was yeah. working through that. And now she does, she won't watch figure skating. She's just over it. It must, yeah. it must be hard. Yeah. I mean, not on her level. I played soccer and, got cut in college and I watched the world cup. I love soccer. I'm all about soccer, but for her, it's, I think she was a little closer to it being a reality. So it's,
0: it's hard for her. Do you recall some of the things that your parents said about the world that made this anxiety so real to you? And at what ages they, I, I'm hesitant to say that they
1: inflicted this anxiety. I think they're, dna and their empathy just oozed out of them and i and i don't think they withheld any i mean there's a story in the book about going through photographs you know before digital cameras and my dad was a civil rights attorney one of his main bread and butter was just taking down nursing homes he just assassinated nursing homes because you know he's he has a clause of abuse in his,
0: is incredible and
1: and he was early on in in sorting to help prevent that. And he has a clause in his will that if any of us put him in a nursing home, we don't see a dime. Like he's (laughs) so he's he's a badass. But you know, before digital cameras there was no separation of photographs. So you'd go through the you'd get the photos back from the photo mat and it's like birthday party, soccer game, like bed sore, horrific bed sore. And it's like, okay, that's dad's evidence. That's dad's evidence. Like, okay, evidence, evidence, evidence. Oh, there we are playing, you know, riding a horse. Wow. And so it's that firmly embedded in, in us as children that like, okay, well there's awful shit, but also, okay, good stuff, good stuff. You know, why, what a metaphor. I know um, for that's the house I grew up in. That's the household I grew up in. And we all worked at my dad's law office when we were young, when we were, you know, old enough to make copies and answer the phone, uh, so we were we were aware of everything. Okay, yeah,
0: uh, yeah. And I did apologize if it seemed like I was l- trying to throw your parents under the bus. I was just trying to understand how you absorbed all of this. Yeah, uh, no information.
1: No apology necessary. I just think it really was sort of osmotic, and yeah. we just knew about it. Our parents didn't hide, you know, anything from us, and um, you know, we were. I, I I wrote about this, but my dad was also really big in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And there's this great handicaps right group in Colorado called they're called Adapt now. They used to be Atlantis. It's it's the premier national handicap rights group started out of denver and it started with this guy wade blank who was for lack of a better term the mlk of handicap mm-hmm. rights and wade was inside this nursing home where they had all these horrifically disabled people and were just kind of warehousing and abusing them and he saw the abuse going on and he's sort of been like why can't we get these people their own apartments why can't we take some of this medicaid money and get it to these people directly instead of like keeping them in warehouses so wade because that's not profitable <laughs> exactly yeah so Wade got in touch with my dad, and they became buddies on that case. Wade was sort of the whistleblower and provided my dad the information, and my dad sued the shit out of everybody. And then Wade and my dad went on to, like, attack RTD, like, literally, which is the um, the public transit company in Denver. You know, these handicapped people surrounded the buses and just locked them in, demanding to have accessibility to the buses to be able to ride. So Denver was the first place to make buses handicap accessible. So anyway, Wade was just this awesome man. And when I was 12, Wade drowned saving his son, who was Lydia's friend. And it was just like the first dose of like, Oh my God, like the world is a fucked up place. Like Wade is, was the embodiment of, of good and morality to all of us. And like, He got taken out early, and that stayed with my whole family for a long time.
0: Still does. And did that kind of attach a danger to wanting to uh, do good in the world?
1: No, I think it just attached a general danger to everything. It's just chaos. Yeah, and a sense of gloom. And it's like, if it can come for this guy, like this beaming force of light and good, then it's, it's out there coming for everybody. I mean, yeah, it was the first time the darkness sort of descended on our sunny little clan in a very real way, and that stuck with all of us. And how old were all of you? I was twelve, eleven or twelve. Lydia was seven or eight, and Lincoln, the child who died, was uh, like a very dear friend of Lydia's. It, you know, it was it messed us up. It was a it was a rough one. It messed my dad up real good. It was oh. a it was a tough one.
0: And how do you remember? people reacting uh in the in the house i remember my dad
1: like howling in anguish when he got the news like just devastated and i remember my mom and i mean it scared us because we would never seen our dad like that and i remember my mom being at some point being like you need to talk to the kids like they're scared for you they don't understand this and it's i i write about this but it's a beautiful moment where my dad and it's my to this day my religious worldview my dad like pulled a book off the shelf. I believe it was photographs from the Hubble telescope of, you know, deep space and quasars and wormholes and comets. And, and he kind of just showed it to us and he's like, we don't know why any of this exists. We barely understand it yet. We're in the middle of it existing. And like that in itself is a miracle. And like, that's the best we have. And I was just like, yeah. And so that's kind of my
0: religion. That's all I got. Uh, I have a friend who did not believe in God and until he was in rehab, and he was still saying, you know, there, there is no God. The Big Bang caused everything. And a woman came up to him and said, but what caused the Big Bang? <laughs> and in that moment, he realized, I can't explain everything. And he just surrendered to the idea that there might be something Yeah, it's, and
1: what, you know, I never say I'm an atheist, I always say I'm an agnostic and and yearning spiritually, because how boring and arrogant to think you know it all, you got to figure it out, man.
0: That you know one way or the other, that there is a God or there isn't, I don't know if there is, but my life works better for me if I act as if there is one, just kind of through trying to live a principled totally life.
1: I didn't have any religion growing up. My wife is Catholic and early on, that was a problem for me. <laughs> yeah. I, but it, you know, that's all that I've been through and, and has sort of taught me to believe whatever you need yeah. to get through. I'm not going to judge you for that. Yeah. You know, I'll judge your church for certain things, but if you find a spirituality and a beauty and a code of good behavior out of this religion, then what's the problem?
0: Right. And there are many atheists, a uh, shout out to, uh, Anne from Berlin who wrote a beautiful th- Thing about that and she is an atheist but she leads a beautiful principled life yeah. and that to me is church is God or the the pursuit of wanting to connect to something greater than ourselves which would be to me the energy of love that's what my kind of my God totally. or higher power is and
1: atheists get a bad rap but I love a good positive like hey I have my own code that's yeah. beautiful and kind I don't need to
0: believe in God to have that code like that's awesome yeah um so back to how you remember kind of the uh, shockwave through the house your dad was howling. Um, do you remember any kind of visible effects it had on you or uh, what was your middle sister's name? No, or I'm the is, middle. So Lydia, oh, okay. Lydia was the baby. I'm the middle. Older sister's Anna. Anna. Yeah. Um, what do you remember how each of you – dealt with it
1: you know i and I, i've had thought about this a lot lately like um lydia internalized it and i and lydia's teacher reported that she you know would like mumble about lincoln the child who died in class for months after that and then she'd, she'd be like what's that lydia and she's just like no nothing you know and anna when she went to high school uh joined atlanta started volunteering there you know anna's now a civil rights attorney with my dad so anna is always like I'm going to be proactive about this. Mm. Um, I don't really know how I dealt with it. <laughs> I was just sad. And I remember snapping on a kid in fifth grade because in fifth grade, it was like the height of the of the retard comedy boom and the boom doing the, the quote unquote retard voice. And like, it was just that, that was everybody's humor in fifth or sixth grade. And I just remember snapping on a kid and being like, you don't do that anymore. Like, you know, because this was the people that Wade had fought for. So I was like, you don't get to do that. And I remember being like mocked for that, but I was like, I don't care. It just pissed me off. Yeah, it gets me teary-eyed thinking about because I was just like so angry about it.
0: What? What?
1: So I went a it's, little bit t- into the uh, you know politically active in the hallways of my fifth grade class, but
0: and why? Why do you feel like that brings up tears? I don't know. It
1: just is. <laughs> I I think, I I think there's a lot of it missing that, that feel bad for Wade and that just that family, um, still, but yeah.
0: Do you, is there any kind of grief for the little you that was alone in many ways in his morality and view of the world? It's, maybe
1: maybe cuz you know i look right now i'm like this comic and i'll i'll you know do the most cynical joke like there's nobody that can you know we're comics we are we bust balls it's like i don't go blue i'm not one of those like you know i'm a goon comedian but i definitely there's not much that offends me um and i understand if people are clumsily navigating offensive material to get to hopefully a better place in comedy I understand that's an unfortunate chapter of a open micer um but yeah, back then I was very, I guess I maybe am sad about the pureness of that, Adam, like, because I love what I do, but I was like, you should have put that into more activism or something like that. Because uh, I really admire my sister and my dad. Like, you know, I always say I get to tell dick jokes because they're out there being the change. Yeah. Um, so maybe, I don't know. I don't know what that was about, but it just made me emotional.
0: So would it be fair to say that you feel like you have kind of come up short in what your parents expected or you expected of yourself to uh, foster change in the world? I don't
1: know. I don't feel – no, because I don't think I've come up short in any way because my parents are, like, so proud. Like, my dad comes to all my comedy shows, and this book is very hard and personal about the family, but my mom – you know, when I signed the book deals, like, I'd love to go to New York with you and like, you know, go, go to Simon Schuster and, and mm. you know, have this literary experience or whatever. So, you know, she was a writer and her son's writing and they're very proud. Um, And I, my sisters are proud, I know. So I don't know what that is about. I mean, I think I always would like to be more active. I'm always doing charitable shows with the Mental Health Center of Denver and, mm. Um, you know, maybe down the road or something, but it's definitely in my DNA. I feel like you know, if you're not doing something, especially in this climate, you're kind of like, so, so what? You did a ten minute spot
0: tonight? Cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so let's, unless there are any seminal moments, uh, we're skipping over. Let's fast forward to sure the um, the big break, the big breaks. That you you got with the Montreal festival and your show idea sure. coming coming to fruition. Sure, I mean, you know, I was a comic in Denver and I had two very good
1: friends who I still have, Ben Roy and Andrew Orvedal, and we were a little troupe called the Grolics, and uh, we did live shows that were kind of the only alt comedy in Denver. as you know, two thousands, we were the face of alt comedy in our little corner of the How comedy old are you? world. I'm 38. Okay. So, you know, in my twenties, mid twenties, doing all this stuff and, um, making a lot of videos and those are getting some attention. And we wrote a script called Those Who Can't about inept teachers. And it started getting some attention in Hollywood. And, and, uh, right around that same time, I got accepted to be a new face at the Just for Laughs in Montreal competition, which I, I could say is, you know, it's kind of like being drafted into the NFL it's like welcome to the big leagues kid. Like we, we, we think you got talent and we're drafting you. It's a big deal for a comic, especially one from Denver, Mm -hmm. you know, in these second tier cities of comedy don't get nearly as much love as New York and LA. So to make it out of there, you know, everyone in Denver's losing their minds. Ben Roy had been the year before I was there that year. Andrew wound up going the next year. It's like we were, we were doing something. We were making some noise in the comedy landscape. And, uh, yeah, I went to Montreal and had, did great, and then I came back home, and life took a real hard left turn. Talk about the... The left turn? The left turn. Well, and- you know, the during this whole time, my little sister Lydia was starting to spin out. And growing up, Lydia and I were very close, and especially with humor. We formed our senses of humor together. You know, Anna was involved. Anna was close with all of us. We all laughed together. But there was something about, you know, Anna going off to figure skating practice and me and Lydia sitting in front of the TV and riffing off the stuff we were seeing that was made really, I I consider my sense of humor wrapped up in Lydia and vice versa. We would do characters and bits. And then when I got moving in the comedy world or the Denver version of it, Lydia moved back home and was so into it. And she was a little punk rocker chick, but comedy became her new punk rock. And she's like, I love this. And so she's, she would help me make flyers. She would run tech at the shows. She would go over my material with me in an intimate wow. way that you only allow a comic to do. But I didn't know anybody funnier than her. And it's my little sister. And her notes were always like dead on. And severe, like, that's fat. You can trim that fat. <laughs> it's just like really good advice. Um, and, but... She started breaking down and, you know, she was suffering from depression and she had several ugly episodes. And by the time I got back from Montreal and two days later, she took her own life. And it was, you know, you think you're on top of the world. King Kong coming home, kissing his muscles. And then something like that happens and you don't care about any of it anymore. Your life changes completely. You're just devastated.
0: Talk about the uh, last interaction that you had with her about her behavior the yeah, it was, before.
1: Yeah, it was really sad. It was, you know, I got back home. My friend Andrew called me, who's in Grawlick's cohort, and he was like, hey, man, you know, I was thought he was going to call me to congratulate me about Montreal or whatever, and he's like, yeah, I was at the bar last night. Your sister was acting insane. She got kicked out. She was yelling. She was screaming. It was insane. And I was like, all right, thanks for letting me know. And, it, you know, there had been a lot of, Not like that, but there'd been some enough, you know, she'd been to the psych ward previously. There'd been two overdoses at this point. So we knew she was on delicate ground. So I called her and I was like, but, you know, but also she would be good, bad, good, bad, normal, insane, normal. I don't mean to say insane, normal behaving, you know, manic and out of control. And it was very frustrating to watch her bounce between them. So. And only in hindsight do you realize the severity of it all. But anyway. Had and she it,
0: been diagnosed with bipolar or anything or? Yeah. But okay. she,
1: you know, she was a, she, she died when she was 28. These diagnoses were p- private and we didn't know what she had per se. I mean, we knew I th- she was out foxing shrink after shrink after shrink and getting the prescriptions that she needed and moving on to the next shrink. And she was a fiercely sharp girl. The, and I, I think she was just entertaining these therapists to get whatever she wanted out of them.
0: Was she getting medication she needed or medication she wanted to uh, cope with it in a non-therapeutic long-term way? I
1: think both. And I, you know, she wasn't like this pill popper. She never did those drugs previous for any recreational reason. But I think her brain was, you know, abandoning her in ways that scared her. And so she found some that felt good, perhaps in a clinical way, and some that felt good in another way. And she went down whatever road she felt was the right road, not probably what was being recommended at the time. I see. So um, it was
0: fair to say she was self-medicating in some ways? I think
1: so. Okay. I think so.
0: And were drugs or uh, street drugs or uh, no. alcohol or anything? No, thing never. For her? No? No. Teetotaler. Okay. Just okay. didn't
1: like it um, until she started seeing therapists and taking pills and- you know i'm i'm not gonna I'm not qualified to talk about that, but I remember after her first overdose, I was like, "We're throwing all these away right and she's like, "Oh yes, right you know um was
0: it an intentional overdose she
1: had she had one she's very tiny, and so she had one that she was having a lot of trouble sleeping, and so she convinced us that you know it was a miss uh, uh, a miscalculation and body weight and I did too much and I'm sorry and we're like okay and we wanted to believe that the second one was crystal clear that she was she said she wasn't trying to kill herself but she was trying to be asleep constantly which is like what's what's the difference and that one oh I can map that out for you yeah I bet you can (laughs) I bet you can so anyway that one was like fuck word this is bad and um So, yeah, she, I called her up and I said, Andrew says you're acting crazy. And she just kind of started crying. She's like, I can't stand that people would say that about me. And, and I was, you know, it's just hysterical. And I was like, well, come over here. And she came over to my house and just kind of like collapsed on the floor. And I was like, it's all right. Like you're going through a rough patch. It's okay. Like you just acted nuts last night. Like no one's, it's not permanent damage. This was out of concern, not anger. She was only eating Belgian waffles for that last month. So I took her to her favorite Belgian waffle spot. We had, we had waffles. I picked her up. I dusted her off and then I went home and crashed because I had been up for like 30 hours partying at Montreal and just being a fool. So I, I just kind of handed her off to my sister. I was like, I, Lydia had this today. Here's today's update. You know, I'm going to sleep or whatever. And then I think I might have talked to her the night before a little bit, like, yeah, all right. And she's like, I'm all right. And then the next day she, you know, sent an email out, said, love y'all. And and then that was that.
0: Yeah. Are you comfortable talking about going to her place?
1: I mean, on some level, you know, I wrote the book and, and I wrote that out in great detail. And I went to EMDR <laughs> for the trauma of this memory so you know i'm comfortable getting into it a little bit i i you know i went to find her and i walked up the stairs and there she was lying in bed with a gun in her hand and having taken her own life and you know every word to describe the trauma is fitting it was total and complete and i called my sister and You know, it's just a flash. Ambulances, EMTs, family pouring in, dogs howling and crying, and, you know, neighbors wondering what's going on. This summer had been really hot, all these wildfires, and this, like, just storm moved in and just doused the neighborhood for 30 minutes. And we're all just like, that's Lydia. Like, there she goes. Um,
0: Saving the world.
1: (laughs) Saving the world. Giving us one last little dose, um, yeah, and then it was just, you know, a hellscape for months.
0: The the moment when you saw her, you describe in the book what, physically what you yeah experience. Can, yeah, can you share that?
1: Yeah, I remember writing um, and remember feeling that you know they say you go out of your body in that moment, but in that exact moment there was no out of body. It was the most I felt like. You know, in medieval times when they're trying to take down a big castle door with a battering ram, it just felt like that in my solar plexus. I have probably fell over, you know. It was so complete hurt, and a physical hurt, like where emotion bleeds into physical. I'm like, it it was just pain. Um, And I didn't feel in those moments any like, betrayal or anger or any it was just like hurt um yeah it was shocking i've never felt anything like that
0: and i would imagine some of that hurt is for how she hurt that she that solution
1: was what she chose yeah i think so i don't know i haven't really thought about the origin of it in that moment but yeah, I mean, certainly but, now. But
0: don't don't let me put words in your no no. Your I mouth. I think
1: that you know, it was. I think you name a type of hurt. It all came with the force of a battering ram. Right, right then. Yeah, it's hard to get subtle. It's hard to get subtle, <laughs> and <laughs> was, and and gradations of hurt. Yeah, uh, it was just total. You know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know when when people criticize uh, someone who's taken their life, I I always think of the. Sorry to get so heavy, but, uh, you know, we're talking about yeah, it. But yeah, I always here. think of the people that jumped from the burning building in nine eleven, And I tend to think of that, that it's – that was not their first choice. What a
1: great metaphor. It's a painted into a corner. Yeah. I reached this conclusion writing, and I don't – you know, this is kind of the whole crux of the book for me, so I don't know if I'm getting to it too early in this interview, but – you know, Lydia, we talk about empathy in my family. And Lydia felt that more than any of us. I mean, truly. she Not just Lincoln, her buddy dying, but, you know, she was sad for aunts that got stepped on. And she really felt every ounce of life empathy. And what devastated her the most was when her family was sad. Because she was the way same way I doled out prayers on an equal snake draft system lydia was in love with our family and to hurt us would devastate her if one of us was hurted she would do anything she she could to get us away from that place and for her to put us in a place of hurting you know cue the shame and the whatever i can do song and dance to get you out of that place and knowing now that lydia was so mentally ill and saw so few options for herself that the only thing she could think to even do to escape it was hurt us profoundly forever, uh, I truly understand how little of a choice she had because that was her last out. It was 9-11, people jumping to avoid the flames and wreckage. That was Lydia's like, God, this is going to hurt my family, but this is the only way I can get out because it's the only way I can stop the hurt, which is trumping the hurt that my family's going to have, right. and I and I understand. And when you get to that place, there's no anger or or uh, resentment.
0: It's just sad. It's just really sad you got to that place, Lydia. We did an interview with Kevin Briggs, who was a uh, uh, highway patrolman who uh, patrolled the Golden Gate Bridge for years, oh, man. and so he talked a lot of people uh, off uh, the ledge, and. Sometimes he wasn't able to, but the conversations that he had with them, the one thing he said they all shared with him is that they felt like a burden, which is, to me, such proof that there is a distortion, a mental illness going on there, that 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 is one of the lies that it tells you. And that doesn't mean that you haven't, ever put someone through the ringer but they would rather have you here i know
1: and that's so amazing that's what he said because that's you know that's lydia's thinking they will be i remember her i don't know where she wrote this or said it but she, you know you'll be sad for a while and then it'll be easier for you because i'm such a burden and you know how that shows how off your thinking is because I'd prefer the burden for the rest of my life. I'll take it. I would have you be a burden until we're in our 90s, and that's my old little burden, little sister over there with the varicose veins. No problem. I'd take that.
0: Well, this would be a good time or a terrible time to talk (laughs) about the, the burden that sometimes is there when you have a loved one that has mental Illness. And to be clear, you know, this is just a. um, I, I so don't want somebody who's suicidal right now hearing this and going, so it is real. I really am a burden. But it's also important for, I think, people who live with a loved one who has depression or whatever to know that what they're experiencing sometimes is real. Um, I, I think it's on, I think
1: it's helpful to have an honest portrayal on every side of the coin. And I hope anyone who is suicidal can see how devastated I am. And, you know, if you think that your family would be better off without you, you're dead wrong. Mm-hmm. And you're going to leave a wake of just permanent hurt in your family. And it's not anger at you. It's just sadness that you're going to create in them. But listen, I think it's also important to, be honest about the flip side. I think portrayals of grief and suicide are very two dimensional, and it's like this wounded, hurting person and this family or or friend that just ugh, wish if it could have done couldn't do any more. You know, could I wish I could have done some more? We did every single thing we could possibly do. We're a family of means that you know tried to do everything to help. There's of course you're going to feel guilt for not having done enough. But there's some times where there's nothing that can be enough. And I think it's also okay to send, have, be honest about frustration. And you know, a person who's very clinically depressed and suicidal is also very navel-gazing and just me, 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 me. It's not a fun person to hang out with. And if you love them to death, literally, you're hanging out with them all the time, trying to cheer them up. And all they're talking about is woe well is me. It's okay to get frustrated. That's a natural thing. Um, and it's okay to bitch about that to your other family members and be like, it's a rough day with Lydia. It's like, God, I wish she wouldn't be a flake today,
0: you know, but it's okay. But then go back and do another shift. And I think an important thing to talk about here too, is the importance of, um, the person, the loved one getting support, being honest with, uh, the person who is suffering, uh, about the need for them to do what they can to get help to be able to say to say to them if you need help making an appointment i'll, I'll help you with that but you need to help yourself for me to hang in there with you you need to also invest in this because mm-hmm. otherwise it's draining for for me yeah. to keep putting out this wildfire um <clears throat> when you're not making an effort and also to say, I understand you're struggling to get out of bed. I understand how hard the idea of going for help is. Um, and to, and through that setting boundaries, I've had to set boundaries with people who were clinically depressed, but refused to get help. Yeah. Uh, because I, I said, I love you, but I can't stand by and watch you destroy yourself because it's it it's too painful yeah for me to do that um <clears throat> and sometimes i think that that tough love um can be a catalyst sometimes not but yeah. ultimately we can't control what they do we can only express um what it is that we're experiencing to try to break that navel gazing.
1: Yeah. And you have to look out for yourself as well in this, you know, I was there every step of the way and I'm still broken that it happened. And I still wish I'd done more, but I don't know what more I could have done. I've, you know, not far less than you, but I've had to talk a lot about mental illness lately. And I've talked to some friend of mine is at the mental health center, Denver, my buddy, Adam. And he was like, I was like honestly I was like give me some language dude I'm going to be talking about this I don't want to sound like an idiot like help me out and what he told me a lot of things but what really helped me to understand actually is is just thinking of mental health as a, on a spectrum and like no one's 100% perfect like see you next year uh and no and and there's you know you you're either you're not sane or insane you're all somewhere in between trying to figure out our brains which are complex and the only you know to people who are suffering the spectrum moves. It shifts. Yes. You're in a bad spot now. In three years you might be in a great spot. And just like physical health, everybody pats you on the back for doing push-ups and eating right. It's totally great to be working on your mental health and to be honest about I'm working on my mental health. And friends of people like if you're in a good spot, recognize you're in a good spot and be there for the people who aren't in a good spot. Yeah. And it's just not it's just not eternal. It's not A life sentence. It's it's malleable,
0: and and it can feel (laughs) eternal. And that's the scariest part. The lack of empathy uh, people get sometimes when they're suffering. Um, You know, if you were to equate it to the gym, uh, because I I went for years with being unable to get a handle on my clinical depression, despite going to psychiatrists and trying different meds i have treatment resistant depression and it would feel like i was going to the gym every day and i was getting more out of shape (laughs) yeah it, it can be so frustrating and in those moments it is so important to have patience with the process lay down when you feel like it don't apologize for what it is you're going through try try to keep moving your your feet forward but be compassionate with your with yourself and you know it 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 took years for me to find the right combination of meds and I'm, I I still feel like I'm not completely out of the woods and I probably never will be but my quality of life is great yeah and it took it took years to get there and I'm so glad I hung in there because now I can have conversations like we're having, and I can share that experience with other people and let them know you're not alone. It's really important for you to not only understand you're not alone, but to not go through this alone.
1: Um Which, as you know, some people – who are probably resistant to that line of dialogue because they're hearing it from their loved ones to be able to plug in a podcast like you're doing and just hear it alone without someone in their immediate circle. Who's
0: they're questioning their motives or what it's such a valuable thing. It's really a valuable thing. Um, And if you can't get that support from your immediate family or friends, there are people who will support you. There are support groups, mental health professionals. Um, There is a um, a website called helpguide.org that lists um, every kind of resource imaginable from, you know, support groups for trans teens to people with bipolar, people with uh, addictions, et cetera, et et cetera. But um, it's complicated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, buddy. Super complicated. Um we, we were talking before we started uh recording about looking for the pockets of beautiful and yeah. the awful and mundane aspects of life. Um is that something that you try to be conscious of in your in your daily life?
1: Absolutely. Um you know, I'm at a good place and writing this book helped me because You know, and I was very careful to not make this this horrible, sad tale of death and depression and mental illness. Lydia was a unique force. She was weird and funny and really smart and a joy to everyone who knew her for, you know, 26 years of her life. And then the last two, some switches flipped in her brain and she was even a joy then. There was just a lot of darkness and a lot of happiness and it's all wrapped in there together. Um, So it's taken me a lot of therapy and thought to get to a point where those two years at the end don't dominate the narrative. And I'm focused on the 26 gifts of years that I had with this pretty awesome little sister. Um, And I've gotten back to celebrating that. And that is like a profound journey for me to even be there. So in a way it's made me more optimistic You know, we were talking about religious worldviews earlier, and like, (laughs) I've kind of come to the place through talking a lot with my father, actually, that it's like, okay, if you believe in an afterlife, then we got a short little amount of time on this planet, infinitesimally short if you think about it in Big Bang terms, and uh, and you'll be reconnected, Lydia, in whatever cosmic form that is, in a blink of an eye. So why be sad for this whole time you're here? And if you don't believe in an afterlife, and it all just goes to black, and this is just some weird, short, infinitesimal <laughs> amount of time we have on the planet, and that's it. Uh, Why are you being sad the whole time? And I've just kind of gotten to that place, and I've really just chosen to be optimistic, and i got a, a kid on the way, and... I really love my family and community in Denver and I'm, you know, I planted a garden for the first time this year and I pulled a radish out and I felt the sense of satisfaction that's bigger than any career achievement ever. I was like, me, dumb Adam made a piece of food that I grew, you know, little things like that as just I I focus on that and celebrate that stuff.
0: Uh, To wrap up, let's unless there's anything else that you would like to share. This has been great. Um, Again, the the book is uh, Tragedy Plus Time, and uh, I'll put links to that and to your show, uh, Those Who Can't, which is on True TV, starting its third or fourth season. Starting its third season later this year, yeah. Um, And congrats on on that that success. Uh, Let's take it out with some fond memories of uh, Lydia. Oh, man. I love that. Thank
1: you. Um, I – okay. Well, there's uh, so many. Like – Uh, It must
0: be hard to find one to say, oh, well, this is, uh, you know, this is the one that I want to uh, represent. Uh,
1: Okay. Well, here's one that I haven't like really shared that I really like. And it's very simple. But when I moved back, when I graduated college, I was 22. Lydia was 18. So she was going off to college. But I moved back that summer to figure out my next move back home in Denver Lydia's 18 going off to college and like we both just loved the white stripes we thought the white stripes were the bees goddamn knees mm-hmm. and it was you know early white stripes period and I was, had been playing guitar in college, and I didn't know she could play drums, but she had been teaching herself drums. So we just sat in the basement that summer and went through the White Stripes catalog, like white blood cells. They're all pretty easy, and we taught ourselves every single song, and we, you know, cranked it, made so much noise down there, and I remember my friend, not that the White Stripes have a bassist, but... My, I we were trying to write a few other songs. My friend who played bass in a real band in Denver came over and like just kind of sat in for a little bit. And we didn't know what we were doing. Never, neither one of us played with band. And uh, we played a few songs. And he just looked at us and he goes, "Man, you know why I like playing with you guys? Because you just fucking rock." <laughs> <And> I was <laughs> like, "So." And we never did anything with it beyond that. But like, I just like me and Lydia in the basement fucking rocking out for a summer was, was great. Wow. Yeah. What
0: it was a, nice. What a great memory. Totally. Well, Adam, thanks, thanks for coming and sharing this. And uh, your book is is great, and um, I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate. It. I'm such a fan of the podcast, and thanks for having me.
0: And I think it's a special special thing you do. Thank you. What a nice guy. Um, before we take it out with uh, a bunch of surveys, I, I got a um, a note from somebody that is frustrated trying to read the surveys. Uh, you know when you go on our website you can there's about a dozen surveys that you can take all anonymously and uh you can also read surveys and see how what other people have filled out and so what you would need to do is you click on the link uh to say read surveys and it may take a while to load because so many people have taken the surveys um so you'll see the little kind of spinning thing Uh, Don't worry, it will show up. Sometimes it'll take like 10 or 15 seconds for some of the surveys that are, um, you know, for instance, the Shame and Secret survey, like 9,000 people have have filled that survey out. So it's going to take a while. And then uh, to read each individual survey, you would click on towards the top after it loads, click on individual responses, and then you can just page back and forth Um, And read as many as you want. All right. Um, This, oh, I talked about uh, caramels. I always feel uncomfortable pronouncing the word caramel. It just sounds so like I should be wearing an ascot. I've always said caramel, but at some point, I felt stupid. So for me, there's really no way to address this candy without sounding like an idiot or somebody wearing (laughs) topsiders, smoking a uh, a cigarette. Like uh, what was that old cigarette ad where it just showed like a guy on a yacht smoking? In like the least masculine way you could ever smoke a cigarette, and uh it just always made me laugh so Charlie sent me an email, and he said, "Somatic experiencing and caramels, so sucky candies." Can be a part of somatic experiencing as the sucking and swallowing unclenches and soothes the jaw, neck, and throat muscles where trauma is trapped from chronic silencing. I use chewy and hard caramels. It works as advertised. Also, there's something about sucking and swallowing that activates the social engagement mechanism where oxytocin flows nicely. Uh, that's good to hear. Um, I had mentioned that I've been doing somatic experiencing. Um, for a while and uh, still doing it not as often as I did before but um, it's really good for in-person trauma releasing
1: I was a little I was kind of
0: skeptical of it at first but um, yeah gonna get right on that caramel thing did I say caramel? you idiot caramel oh you uppity blue blood this is uh, an email that I got from Anna Mae, And she writes, Hey Paul, I just wanted to tell you how much I love and appreciate the monologues you do sometimes in the beginning of the podcasts. Uh, one of those monologues really got to me and was exactly what I didn't know I needed to hear. Uh, you said, I was thinking about shame and I thought... It really is kind of a form of fantasy because we don't tell ourselves. Because we tell ourselves that by shaming ourselves, it's a way of disciplining ourselves so that we don't do something again. But it's not really necessary. It's like, I'm going to go wake somebody up. It's like if you would just keep shaking them for five minutes after they immediately woke up. No, your conscience just needs to be awakened. It doesn't need to be pulverized. Nice thing about having a bad memory is i don't remember saying that and i'm like oh i kind of like that uh, she continues i'm a 20 year old bisexual slash pansexual woman with a huge preference for women 80 percent of my crushes have been women and last week for the first time in my life i admitted to myself and my therapist my deepest darkest fear i couldn't verbalize it so i wrote it down i begged her not to read it out loud the thing is My mom breastfed me till I was eight years old, even though she wasn't lactating after the first year. And when I started realizing I'm not straight, I started obsessing over that fact. What if that's why I like girls? What if I'm reenacting that when I'm with women? What if I'm actually in love with my mom? But fact is, I don't like my mom, As soon as I became aware of my attraction towards women, I stopped looking at and touching her chest, started showering on my own, started covering up and wouldn't let, and wouldn't let her see any part of my skin that she had access to before. I stopped hugging her as well. She never forced anything on me. I know that it wasn't sexual for her. It was innocent bonding, but left me utterly confused and full of shame for my entire adolescent years and even today. When I wrote it down on a paper for my therapist to read, it triggered such a horrible meltdown. She barely managed to calm me down, and for the whole 35 minutes, I just sat there sobbing hysterically, covering my eyes from shame, and then time was up and I had to leave. A week later, today, I heard your words in the podcast. I realize, I, I realize that I'm awake and conscious and need to stop beating myself up for something that isn't my fault. It was her responsibility as an adult to establish proper boundaries and stop breastfeeding me after a year. It's not my fault and my sexuality doesn't correlate with what happened to me. The only thing it did to me sexually is make me uncomfortable and grossed out to touch breasts because it reminds me of my mom and disgusts me. I have to wonder though, why was your mom, if she wasn't lactating anymore, why was she breastfeeding you? Uh, I tried doing research to better understand how what happened affected me, but found absolutely nothing. No research, no similar cases, nothing on forums. The only thing that would come up is how breastfeeding for too long affects mothers. Nothing about children. Your words were exactly when I needed to make peace and accept my past. They sort of guided me to a path that seems less shameful and freeing than the one I'm currently walking on. Uh, my therapist had asked me at least three times before if I'd ever been sexually abused, not necessarily raped or molested, maybe even just touched inappropriately, and not once did I ever mention my mom. Each time she asked, my mom did cross my mind, but it's as if I were to mention my mom, I'd be calling her a predator or something, and it would destroy the only family relationship I have left, which explains why I always try to belittle and forgive every little or big mistake she makes. I'm always on her side in fear of losing the only person that ever loved me. I fear that if someone knows all about my sexual fantasies and experiences, they won't ever be able to love me, that somehow it makes me unworthy. I always tell my partners that in no way does one's sexual preference make them any less lovable, yet when it comes to my own self, I have a hard time listening and believing my own words. Thank you so much for that. And uh if if you're out there and you have experienced mm, a lack of boundaries from your mother that feels um, um, questionable uh, feel free to for, to email me and um, and I'm talking about like uh, where you're being treated like a partner or uh, there were no boundaries around nudity or your body or her body. Um, it is a really common thing. And until I started talking about my experience, which is slightly different than a lot of the other experiences here, um, it's, I didn't realize how pervasive this is. And uh, there is a private uh, support group that I can connect you with um, where you can find a lot of people who get it and get you slash us. Thank you for that. Ladybug Laugh describes her bipolar one. It feels like I never know on the inhale if my mood will be the same on the exhale about being a sex crime victim. This one is so fucking heavy. And those of you that follow uh, the show on Instagram and Twitter, you may have seen this one already. I have a somebody, there's a, a volunteer uh, named Brooke who is so good at posting struggle in the sentences on Instagram and Twitter. So if you want to get those, um, follow follow the show at mentalpod.com on uh, on both of those and this one is about being a sex crime victim how do you answer how did you lose your virginity when you were four and it was your uncle that is so fucking heavy about her self-harm I started at age seven what normal seven-year-old self-harms gets caught and instead of getting me help was told to just not leave a scar Fuck. And if anybody listening to this podcast is feeling like my stuff isn't enough, these are so heavy. You know, what am I complaining about? It's not it's the feelings inside that matter, you know? I tend to read the things that are more dramatic because it it makes for in terms of uh, a podcast more a more compelling podcast but it doesn't make somebody's experience who was mild any less any less valid emka has depression and shares uh, a sna- and self-harms and shares a snapshot from her life it was a guilty pleasure of mine that whether I was at my own home or even my boyfriend's, I would gather the razors and pick which blade I wanted that day. I knew the dangers of using another person's razor, but it didn't even matter to me. I just loved the process of picking the perfect one and pulling the blade out. Thank you for that. And addictions, sometimes I think the ceremony, you know, the ritual of the tradition, can be as much of a high or more than what follows it. Um, This is a a survey about um, a younger male uh, being violated by an older female. And and I wanted to read this one because I don't believe that this is um, abusive what this woman is is feeling. Nothing happened in, in the real life, but I'm just going to read it. And she calls herself Stereotypical Librarian. And she writes, I work with a younger man. He is 32 and I am 51. And I fantasize about having a a sexual relationship with him. I feel like there is a connection between the two of us. There's a great deal of flirting and sexual innuendo that occurs. It's an equal back and forth. My fantasy feeds on this and his behavior towards me. I am not imagining his flirting and sexual banter and teasing. However, I can't determine whether it's just playful or that it could go further. I fantasize that it could. We talk through the day. We will spend time talking and hanging out. It seems as though we are developing a closer closer relationship. Then he will walk by my room and not stop to talk or say hi. Um, Or unlike most days, he will go home and not say goodbye. When this happens, I start to question my interpretations of our relationship. I begin to think maybe I'm imagining everything. I tell myself I'm an idiot for thinking any relationship. Any relationship is there, or interpret interpreting our interactions incorrectly. Um, and then she goes on to say how she criticizes herself and that it's a cycle of um being drawn in and then shaming herself and feeling deluded. And um I just wanted to say that that, you know, I, I don't think there's any I think the, the thing to focus on here is not the age difference between the two of you because that doesn't strike me as something that's like, you know, wrong. But his attention determining your feeling of self-worth is the thing to focus on. And that's the thing that I would work on. And he, who knows, maybe he's just a flirt and he gets a high from seeing uh, a woman... Um, Engaged and excited to interact with him and you know as my therapist would say what are the facts on the ground and the facts on the ground are that there is no deeper relationship beyond this with him and the only way to know is to ask him or just put the potential of that to to rest. Um, or I think you're going to keep driving yourself crazy with this. And, you know, a lot of people, their sense of power is from flirting and seeing how it stirs up other people. And many of them are not even aware of it. And it's a coping mechanism for them when they begin to feel dead inside or... You know, some type of uncomfortable emotion and it's how they soothe themselves. And it's possible that that's what's going on here, or maybe really doesn't want a relationship with you. But, um, as again, I think the most important thing is that you find some type of help or support to begin to deal with the part of you that feels empty and, and, um, is made or broken by someone's attention or lack of attention. Um, This is an awfulsome moment filled out by, I love the name, The Smiths and Peanut Butter on a Dark Winter Night. It is so easy to picture your teenage years with that name. Uh, She's in her 30s and she writes, Every winter since I was 12, I've been overrun by seasonal affective disorder. My first memory of it, taking hold of my brain, was on a slushy November day. I had drudged home from grade school through melting snow banks as the insufferably long night began to fall around me. I was sodden by the time I got home, but I didn't see the point in taking off my wet coat and snow pants. I shrunk down onto the stairs and sat there crying. My mom wasn't home yet, which was a good thing because crying was either mocked or earned you a backhand if you caught her in the wrong mood. Unfortunately, I was still crying by the time she got home. Much like I felt resigned to sit around in a wet snowsuit, I couldn't work up the willpower to pull myself together for her arrival. She asked me why I was crying, not in a kind way, but I decided to answer her honestly anyway. I'm crying because the world feels like too much. I feel stupid and ugly and worthless, and I just want to die. My mom responded wearily, I bought you the hair curlers you wanted. What else do you want from me? Thank you for sharing that. Oh man, those days, those November, December days when you live in a northern city and it's just gray and it's. Ugh. Ugh. That is a particular, particular kind of depression. It's just like you were wandering through just. It's like you're living in a vacuum, and there is just nothing and it it feels it feels like you feel like a ghost, like nothing is like everything is real to everybody else, but it's just a decoration mm. Uh, Susan sent me an email. Uh, Hi, Paul. I'm an avid listener to your podcast. I love the diverse groups of people and the not-so-pretty topics you discuss freely and openly. I have pretty severe PTSD from childhood trauma, and I've been through therapy for quite a while, but it still gets the best of me sometimes. Two nights ago, I lost it. I was suicidal. The police showed up. I was taken to the crisis center where I was put on a hold. Anyway, it was around 2 in the morning. I'm sitting in one of the cheap vinyl recliners in my paper scrubs, trying to keep warm because it was fucking freezing in there. It was dark, and I felt like I had hit the absolute bottom of my life. And then, I heard your voice in my head saying, You're not alone. You know what you say at the end of the podcast. It made me feel like I wasn't the only one sitting in a mental hospital at 2 a.m. on a Tuesday morning and that I was going to get through it. Anyway, I just wanted to say thank you. You touched my life with your positivity and honesty and truth. Keep up the important work. Thank you so much for that. that. That made my day when I read that. Just absolutely made my day. And... You know, if if this podcast ever feels like a one-way street for you guys, let me tell you, it brings so much meaning to to my life. And there's so many times that my life is helped and made better by the energy that I get back from from you guys. Uh, Whoops. Gives us a snapshot from his life. On my codependency... I met a girl and have only hung out with her a few times and when she invited me out to her art show, I saw her being touchy-feely with another guy she works with. I maintained my composure, but on the way home, I bawled my eyes out, walking to the subway, punching signs I walked by out of frustration. I continued to sob on the subway ride home and I also cried a bunch when I made it home. I barely know her. The power of fantasy is unfucking real. You might check out the book Facing uh, Love Addiction by Pia Melody. It's uh it's kind of the Bible of um fantasizing about, you know, being in a relationship with somebody without even really knowing them. And um because what it's really about is not about that person. It's about us escaping from the feelings that we're having in that present moment. And they're just a vehicle for us to distract ourselves or numb ourselves. Uh, not that that woman's not terrific, but um, her art is terrible. I'll tell you. I don't know who she is, but her art is terrible. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by Chris. Uh, who is agender and they write we have DID which is a dissociative identity disorder it used to be known as uh, multiple personality disorder uh we have DID we were at a birthday party and by the way we is how uh they refer to it um because they have um multiple uh, personalities or identities we have DID we were at a birthday party and i switched into the body uh And my friends instantly recognized me as me and not the host personality. Being validated and recognized when you share a body felt so good. And to anybody who hears that and kind of rolls their eyes, um, let me tell you, DID is fucking real. And um, it is also fascinating. Uh, We've done a couple of episodes uh, with it. I want to say... Our last guest that had it was Melanie, I believe. Um, but it is it is fascinating. And um, thanks for sharing that. Sisyphus, speaking of Sisyphus Brewery, Brewing shares about living with an abuser. Growing up with a mentally ill, violent, alcoholic, emotionally incestuous single mother. Is it cruel to redu- reduce her to that? She had a very hard life. I want to defend her, yet not dismiss my own pain. Tricky. And it's not one or the other. That's one of the things my therapist pounded into my head, is people can be both dark and light. And it's about giving weight to what you're feeling and what you experience, not about putting the other person on trial or determining you know assigning a number from one to ten on the overall you know value of of that person um my mom was abusive and yet there were many things about her and are about her that are wonderful and great things that she gave me and great things that that she taught me and instilled in me and that's the part that is the mind fuck um Thank you for sharing that. And she's also struggling um, to be around her because she's given weight to how she feels. She's angry and doesn't want to be around her and her skin crawls and she wants to leave. And yet she also wants the comfort from her mother. um, And she's also searching for that mothering from someone else. And I just want to say that is textbook. Feeling. Or feelings of confronting the truth about having an incestuous relationship with a parent, whether it's emotional incest or physical incest or anywhere in between, that is—that is what I experienced when I started to recover. Um, And then this is a happy moment, and. It's filled out by, uh, I love this name, a guy who calls himself God Got It Right with Cowgirls. And he shares uh, his happy moment. I don't know if anything makes me happier than going to see a movie with my kid when the theater is more than three quarters empty. I love those little moments and I love when they're moments with a parent really being there for their kid. And, you know, I talked about my mom, one of my happiest memories of childhood is going to see Willy Wonka in the theater with my mom and she saw how much I loved it and she turned to me after it was over and she said, "Do you want to stay and watch it again?" And I said, "Yes." And I felt so seen and heard and um it was just such a happy moment and it is possible for that person to also be the type of person or be the same person, I hate to use the word type of person, but the same person that can deeply, deeply wound somebody. And um, it's hard to wrap our heads around that, but that is, uh, there it is. How's How's that for a running out of steam way of wrapping it up? Anyway, I hope if you're you're listening, um, that you realize that you're not alone, and that there are people who can who can help us, and that we that human connection is so so much of what makes life worth living to me. And I'm glad I stuck around because um, I get to have deep conversations with people and. I wouldn't be able to talk about those things if I hadn't experienced bad things. And if I hadn't been an asshole and felt shame, um, yeah, it's, it's so complicated. Anyway, you're not alone, and thanks for listening.